It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. There's been a lot of discussion recently about the idea of religious freedom, so I invited two scholars to join me in this episode to talk about the related concept of religious toleration. Chris Benicke and Christopher Grenda co-edited a new book called The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. Questions and comments about this and other episodes can be sent to mipodcast at byu.edu. Okay, Chris and Christopher, thanks for joining us today on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure, Blair. Let's begin quickly by talking a little bit about how this book came about. The book is called The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. And this is a book that you both co-edited. So talk about the origins of the book. We were invited to a a conference, actually to a, a series of organizing sessions ahead of a conference about religious toleration in Rhode Island, specifically commemorating the 350th anniversary of the 1663 Rhode Island Charter. And this was sponsored by the Newport Historical Society. And they put together a series of events with local organizations, um, and one of which was a conference, a scholarly conference that was focused on the history of religious toleration. How did, how did the participants get selected? Did they uh, submit papers or how did that come about? Yeah, they submitted papers. So we sent out a call for papers. Uh, people submitted to them. We selected from the the that 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 cohort and put them together into the panels as you typically do for academic conferences. And we had a couple of additional speakers. Uh, but it, it was a way of bringing together people who otherwise might not have, have known one another or, or even of one another uh, to get them into the same rooms to talk about the history of religious toleration. Something that that only happened on a few occasions in the past. Anything to add? Yeah, just in terms of bringing together uh, scholars who uh, may not have known or known of each other, uh, the scholars ranged across uh, uh, several centuries worth of of historical material, so from the 17th century all the way through the 20th century. And so as much as sometimes we end up in our own little niches, chronological niches historically, um, uh, chronologically the conference was quite broad, spanning centuries, and it was also international. Uh, several scholars coming from overseas. So it really did bring together a whole uh, a breadth of, of, of participants um, that, that led to a, a, rich, a rich volume. So it's looking at the idea of religious toleration in America from Roger Williams to the present time. And I thought we could start here by talking about this classic story that a lot of people might uh, carry around in their back pockets of America being founded as a place of religious freedom and the heroic pilgrims and Puritans who fled to the American continent in order to find refuge from persecutors and establish this place of religious freedom for everyone. And uh, before we dig into some of the specifics about that, perhaps you could speak broadly about this narrative and how it came to be told this way and, and speak a little bit to its accuracy. Well, in many ways, actually, it is a true story in that people did flee from religious persecution in the 16th, 17th century, especially the 17th century and early part of the 18th century, from places in Europe that didn't accommodate their forms of of faith, but what they sought and what they oftentimes created in the colonial world was not the sort of haven for religious freedom that we might imagine it was. Uh, in fact, very often, especially in the case of, of, 
uh, colonial New England where the Puritans dominated. These were places of religious suppression where there was a good deal of coercion when people were uh, compelled to go to church uh, and, and a very specific church, the Reformed Calvinist church that dominated there. Elsewhere in Virginia, people were, were also forced to pay for the support of the Anglican church. So, so even when people fled from repressive situations in Europe, what they got in colonial America was not always the freedom that we oftentimes associate with that world. But there were exceptions. And I don't know if you want to talk. Well, about that, I think that's that's part of the uh, interesting dynamic that's that's going on in, in colonial America is is that um, even though much of colonial America wasn't this safe haven for religious conscience, as, as Crispy just just outlined, um, there were certainly uh, cases, provinces, Rhode Island being one, Pennsylvania being another which relative to Europe at the time did offer much more expansive freedoms for religious conscience and religious dissent. Now, they don't quite live up to uh, the level of, 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 of religious liberty we, we tend to think in terms of today. But in terms of their context in the 17th and 18th century, um, they, they certainly were you know, well ahead of their time. And so part of it is, is kind of striking this, this balancing act, we're recognizing now that the old myths about colonial America as being a safe haven for religious conscience, where th those myths uh, no longer hold water, but at the same time recognizing uh, certain pockets, such as Rhode Island or Pennsylvania, that were in, its own, in their own time unique. I think Roger Williams is a key figure in the story here to kind of give a little bit of nuance because he came uh, to the American continent seeking religious freedom, but encountered difficulties here. So he, he kind of exemplifies both sides of this coin that you're talking about. The fact that people did come here seeking uh, religious tolerance, but at the same time, it, it wasn't it wasn't completely tolerant for everyone who came. So let's talk about uh, Roger Williams. I think uh, what might surprise people is to find out that he himself wasn't this sort of <laughs> peace-loving hippie type of guy that was like, let's all hold hands and everybody get along. He was also extremely confrontational and dogmatic himself. So let's talk a little bit about Roger Williams's role. Um, uh, Chris, why don't you uh, start? You're absolutely right. Roger Williams was a truly dogmatic character who had difficulty tolerating people in his own intimate circle who didn't agree with him completely. Uh, he was somebody who took religion very, very seriously and thought, partly for that reason, that people should be able to worship as they please, that it was a matter between God and their own souls. And as a result, um, the state should have no role, um, even individual communities, in mediating between the conscience of the soul and God. And uh, uh, so his conception of religious freedom, though, was based on a dogmatic faith that he would not compromise, again, even with his, within his own family, was also one that had the, the ultimate result of creating freedom for intolerance for people in, uh, in Newport, Providence, and across Rhode Island. Go ahead, um, Christopher. Yes, just to add to that, there, there's a, a theme running throughout the volume that starts with Roger Williams, and it, 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 is, it relates this this uh, sharpness of tongue that he sometimes has, or often had, in, in relation to those who disagreed with him religiously. Um, he could, in, in terms of his public expression, be very uncivil in terms of how he characterized the beliefs and ideas of others. And, and, and this, this notion of, of uh, incivility with Roger Williams and later on in the volume and, uh, and with, with other groups, the, the notion of incivility or uncivil expression, pushing the boundaries of religious toleration, uh, challenging the, the norms of politeness in society or polite expression in society, 
So we see this with Roger Williams in, in the mid-17th century, and just to fast forward to the mid-20th century, one of the essays deals with the Jehovah Witnesses. And that same type of kind of aggressive proselytizing, uh, often taking direct aim at the beliefs of others. Jehovah Witnesses often took direct aim at the beliefs of Catholics as well as other groups. But in so doing, challenging or pushing the boundaries of toleration uh, in, in ways that ultimately proved, uh, at least legally speaking, constructive, expanding the boundaries, at least in one direction, of religious liberty. So that's a theme that starts with Roger Williams in the volume, and, and, and several essays in the volume come back to that theme across time. And I think that's still really relevant, too. Um, people, religious people today might be conflating tolerance with open acceptance, right? Today, do you think it's possible that to mistake public criticism as a lack of religious tolerance? Are there instances of religious groups believing that that the principle of tolerance should shield them from public scrutiny? Um, there's a there's a lot that there's a lot in that question. Um, one way to, to try to get, begin to think through it is is the, the phrase religious tolerance on the one hand, and then simply the word tolerance on the other. And it's hard to really date this, but last 30 or 40 years, um, the word tolerance increasingly standing on its own, uh, apart from simply religious tolerance, and therefore meaning uh, tolerance of all sorts of, of, of uh, social identities. And the more tolerance kind of is standing on its own as a, as a public norm, the tolerance of various identities, the more this strain of incivility, of uncivil expression, is, is coming under criticism. Because the more one is, um, let's say, less than civil in one's expression of one's beliefs and, and, and criticizing the beliefs and ideas in others, uh, therefore the less tolerant one is, according to that kind of freestanding concept of tolerance. Right. So in some ways, um, in, in some ways, it, it seems like re the, the phrase religious tolerance has, I don't want to say completely gone out of vogue, but often the word tolerance simply stands on its own now. And so we're in a situation where it seems like religious liberty on the one hand and tolerance on the other are increasingly coming into conflict in the early 21st century. Chris? Yeah, in some ways you could even say that that was true in Roger Williams' age. And, and, and that is, I'm not sure that he would have embraced something that we call tolerance necessarily. I mean, and did he even use that phrase, Chris? I don't know. Or did that, he even that use, that's a good, good question. Did he even use the word tolerance? Um if he did, it, it, it was it was rare. Um, at least the toleration was a common one. Um, yeah, right. in, in the seventeenth century, of liberty conscience or something like that was much more uh, a phrase yeah. that he was much more invoked. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead, I think though. like religious liberty might have been something he the phrase he used more often, right? Yeah, and and, and rights of rights of conscience and rights of private judgment. Um, so he reserved those things to himself, and and he was tolerant in many ways. Uh, he had. He possessed the characteristic of tolerance, I, I, and, I, and according to our own understanding, and, and that is that he would have allowed people into his society and did who were not only not Protestant, um, but were not Christian. And that was really pretty extraordinary for that, that day and age. And yet, as Chris points out, he was totally uncivil about it. He would tell you point blank if he thought you were wrong. And he would tell you in a really antagonistic way. I mean, he, he did not hold back whatsoever. Um, but that was as broad as you could be, as inclusive as you could be probably at that moment, was to allow people into your society, give them the full privileges 
of of your your um, the full civil privileges and and yet to harangue them. Uh, so it's a very different idea, I think, than we have today, as Chris points out, um, about how to treat those who differ with you. It's almost like he felt that uh, affording someone tolerance included giving them the respect of actually engaging in what they believed in, and that might have included just outright opposition. Exactly. Yeah. No. He had, he had no compunction whatsoever about telling people he thought they were dead wrong. So let's talk about the political situation and the 1663 charter that you mentioned uh, that that is part of the reason for the conference for this book. What was the political infrastructure that Williams operated in and kind of how that impacted his settlement? Let's talk about the politics of it. Well, most broadly, in, in terms of, of the burgeoning British Empire, um, 1663 is the beginning of the restoration period in, in, in English history. The Stuart monarchy is restored to the throne, and Parliament begins passing laws for reestablishing the Anglican Church and laws for uniformity to that church. So in that, in that broad context, we have the reassertion of monarchical power and, and a uniform Anglican Church. Um, but as Evan Heffley points out in the volume, in one of the early essays in the volume, he puts that 1663 charter in global context, showing that how various parts of the British Empire, uh, that under, under Charles's prerogative, the, the king's prerogative, how various parts of the empire were allowed a certain religious toleration or the coexistence of different religious groups. So at home you have this uniformity, at home meaning in, in, in England you have this uniformity being reimposed, and yet in certain parts of the empire overseas, certainly not all parts, but in certain parts of the empire overseas, you have certain experience with, with some forms of religious toleration. So Williams is working in, this, in this, that kind of broad context, but then more locally in Massachusetts, he's coming up against the Puritan authorities, who uh, increasingly are having problems with his uh, with his. Uh, rigid understandings of orthodoxy and, 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 and uh, emerging understandings of the separation of church and state, which lead him to flee Massachusetts and, and set up shop in, in Rhode Island. And he kind of wanted and, like governmental uh, assistance, like uh, support of that, right? This idea of charter, what good would a charter do for him? It, well, it would have guaranteed Rhode Island some degree of sovereignty, would have ensured that they could conduct legislative matters on their own um, and established a, a relationship, a stable relationship with the rest of the empire. So it gave them a degree of discretion that they wouldn't have otherwise had and, and a, a predictability in their affairs that they wouldn't have otherwise had. One of the things you uh, write in the introduction, you say, though though the Charter accords with some critical modern presumptions about society and politics, that document also confronts today's readers with the utter strangeness of 17th century thinking. So, Chris, uh, talk a little bit about that, the idea that uh, there's some things that, that modern readers, uh, as they read this Charter, would, would uh, really resonate with and other things that would seem very unusual for a political document. Yeah, well, uh, well, obviously, when they talk about allowing for a lively experiment in in Rhode Island and allowing people to pursue their own religious consciences, to follow the dictates of their conscience, that seems like something that we can all agree with. That does resonate with the modern age. And yet there were these really um, 
what we would regard today as uh, offensive comments made about Native Americans, poor, ignorant savages, I think the phrase was, um, who were supposed to be converted as a, as a result of this charter and the efforts by Christians, European Christians in New England. So what their, their goal was, was uh, at least their stated goal in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Virginia, was to bring Christianity to a land that seemed to them a wilderness of, of paganism and unbelief. And so it was a, a notion of religion uh, that clearly is uh, uh, presumes that one side is right, another is wrong, that they had the truth and, the, and, and others didn't. Um, and so it, I think anybody who looks at the charter is, is going to find a couple of modern notions, um, a couple of things that will be familiar, but they will find also that much of what's there is unfamiliar, is mysterious. Uh, it, it just looks strange um, and doesn't accord with what we now believe about the world. So, so it, that, that, I think, you know, explains some of the intrigue of this document in this age. And Roger Williams himself, it, uh, he was a bit of an enigma, as was much of what he said and much of what was in that charter. An enigma to us, I should say. Right. Not Chris yeah. Uh, Christopher, do you do you get the sense that there was any sort of religious mission behind uh, Roger Williams as he put this charter together? I, I kind of got the sense that um, he was making an argument that this kind of negotiation between the church or between religion and state would actually foster uh, greater religiosity or would would lead more people to embrace the true religion. It would provide the opportunity. It would provide the space for proselytizing. For, for proselytizing on behalf of the Christian gospel. Uh, that notion of proselytizing, the expectation of winning converts, um, the assumption behind Williams's thought and the charter was that to proselytize effectively, to win converts to the gospel required space, required civic space. And that civic space required the government to retreat, retreat out of that space, stop imposing religious uniformity, um, so there, there definitely is this, this very robust, very robust attitudes of proselytizing and conversion that inform both Williams' thought as well as the charter. Um, in a way, the separation of church and state for him is getting state authority out of that space that, 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 that would therefore be more open to that aggressive proselytizing, which, which, he, uh, which he at times engaged in. How about this analogy that Roger Williams drew? Uh, he used an analogy of a ship at sea, and and um, the ship at sea kind of represented the, the sort of ideal society that he that he was trying to uh, experiment with this lively experiment. So, uh, one of you talk about that church and state relationship ship analogy. So the idea here is that. Everybody has basic obligations. In order for the ship's crew to operate effectively, in order for the ship to sail, there are certain responsibilities everybody must carry out. Certain, uh, the, the, this is a, a metaphor for the civic obligations we all have to pay our taxes, to uh, serve on juries, things of that nature. But we are not obligated in a religious sense. That is, even though Williams may believe that we should be worshiping in a particular way, we do not owe the state anything on that in that regard. That we we have the right to pursue our own particular religious views, um, to uh, worship as we please. That will not influence the course of the ship. That will not 
send everyone to a watery grave. They had these civic obligations. Those are independent of what people believe. Christopher? Yeah, just adding to that, uh, the, no the notion of the ship, as, as, as Chris mentioned, the notion of the ship is kind of a metaphor for civic obligations. And so therefore, uh, Williams could fundamentally disagree with you regarding your beliefs. Uh, he could even think you're going, you're destined for hell because of your beliefs. But if your job on the ship was to mop down the deck, you could perform that job. Uh, you could perform your civic obligations. And so this notion that the ship, uh, civil society, can float desp despite uh, fundamental disagreements on religion um, was wasn't you know is is a is a is, is both a, a a startling concept a liberating concept um and, and hence it still it still kind of resonates with us today so i wondered how that um how that analogy of church state relations stacked up against uh later figures like the baptist isaac bacchus and later on thomas jefferson and how the views on the separation of church and state can be compared between Roger Williams and these later figures? Well, Bacchus was, you know, a late 18th century American Baptist from New England, um, played a significant role in debates in Massachusetts over the Massachusetts State Constitution in, in, in 1780 and thereafter. Um, Bacchus is often credited as, as, as one of the revolutionary figures, one of the few revolutionary figures uh, who actually read Roger Williams. Uh, Roger Williams wasn't exactly the most, uh, his works were not, were not exactly, you know, a standard reading material for the famous founding fathers like a Thomas Jefferson or, or a James Madison. But in Bacchus, I think Bacchus represents a very, a very strong strain in the founding, a strong evangelical strain. Uh, Groups of, 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 of different, uh, whether it be Baptist or Presbyterians, coming out of an evangelical tradition, who continue to have this, this, this sense that religious liberty, as they understood it, required this open civic space where they can proselytize, where they can seek converts, where they could try to spread the gospel. And, and, and that required the state to uh, play an increasingly diminished role in religious affairs. So uh, even though one cannot argue that Roger Williams had any huge impact on, on the American founding, because, again, his books are not, are not widely read amongst the elite founders, um, nevertheless, the, the kind of uh, evangelical perspective he's coming from, the, the importance of proselytizing and such, and that requiring a religious liberty, that perspective certainly does uh, play a significant role amongst many religious groups in, in the founding period and, and most prominently uh, uh, among Baptists like Isaac, Isaac Bacchus. That's right. And the, the thing about um, Bacchus is, is and, and this goes back to your point earlier about the progress or lack thereof in the history of religious toleration, is that, is that Bacchus actually had a more constricted view of who should or could participate in public affairs than Williams. Bacchus, writing nearly uh, 120 years later, um, was uncomfortable with the idea that Roman Catholics would participate equally in the polity, that they would be um, permitted to serve in, in federal offices um, under the U.S. Constitution. So um, there was, in many ways, um, uh, a uh, s something that was much broader in, in, in Williams's thought, uh, something much more inclusive. 
than would be the case for many people, even those who shared his his um, Baptist sentiments um, in in uh, decades and centuries of the past. Now, now Thomas Jefferson also shared Williams's view that church and state should be separate entities that they um, should not encroach upon one another. Um, but uh, Jefferson was different in that he was inclined uh, in his own thinking towards deism or maybe even atheism. We don't really know. Um, he was not trying to open up a space for proselytization necessarily, uh, Christian proselytization, but to the open pursuit of truth uh, and, and, and thought that the separation of truth, a separation of church and state would lend itself to that particular enterprise. Uh, nonetheless, I think they probably would have agreed uh, in, in uh, you know, probably 90, uh, 95% of church-state matters, uh, those two, despite their very different conceptions of how humans should approach God. So the picture that you're painting, it's th the thing that sticks out to me now is people today that talk about the relationship between church and state, because it's still a very contested issue, could look back in history and select a particular figure and sort of crown them as a representative of the founding fathers, uh, capital F, capital F. And uh, there seems to be enough diversity of thought that, that almost anyone could, could kind of cherry pick instances of history uh, to to support current policy. Is that something that you think about very much as uh, as historians who are looking at the past in terms of the ways that it can end up being used today? Short answer, yes. Um, just elaborating that a little bit. Um, the last 15 or 20 years, just for me personally, um, it's a humbling experience. The more one delves into the literature, the more one delves into records. Uh, one might in graduate school feel as though there might be clear answers to this issue of church and state in the founding and the first amendment. And, and as you said, kind of cherry pick, I'll pick Jefferson. Somebody else might pick somebody else. Uh, the, but the more one really engages both the secondary literature and the primary sources, the more clear it is that there, there, there is no one principle um, coming out of the founding, with the possible exception or the exception of, of simply no federal establishment. No, there's no national church. I mean, that's something we could all agree upon. But just to take Jefferson as an example, uh, the cherry picking happens not even between individuals, i.e. you take Jefferson, I'll take somebody else, but even within one individual. So when Jefferson was president, for example, he attended religious services in the Capitol building. It was part of, we talked about kind of incivility before, it was kind of part of Jefferson's sense of civility, of public civility. This is kind of a public decorum, this is what's expected, this is what I'll do. And oftentimes he reserved, Jefferson that is, he reserved some of his most strident comments regarding uh, religious orthodoxy, religious doctrine, for private correspondence, as opposed to Roger Williams who would make them, who would make them public. So even in the character of Jefferson himself, we could, we could read some of his, his his articles and find principles of church and state certainly there, but then we can also look at his, some of his practices, such as re attending religious services in the Capitol, and say, well, how, how do we make all this add up And even that one figure, let alone the scores of other founders? Um, so it, to me, for me personally, it's a humbling experience. It's the, one, the humbling experience, the more one engages the sources, the less one is sure that one can come, across, come away with, with a clear principle that can settle all the disputes we're looking at today. How about you, Chris Benneke? 
Well, yeah, Chris is right that at the time there probably wasn't much of a consensus about uh, how much liber religious liberty should, people should have or how inclusive um, the state should be in terms of allowing people into public office, in terms of sponsoring uh, religious programs uh, or prayer and, and public bodies. Um, the, the, the one thing that people did agree upon was that no, and there should be no established church. Um, a lot of them said they'd be comfortable with a what was called a non-preferential establishment. That is, they'd be comfortable if there was support for religion, uh, but it wasn't directed towards one particular church. And there weren't too many restrictions on believers. Um, they, were, they were willing to tolerate or willing to carry over the old restrictions on uh, uh, Sunday Sunday activity, the Sabbatarian restrictions, so not, you know, that which didn't permit people to work or to play on Sunday. Um, also, the old blasphemy restrictions, uh, uh, keeping people's speech in line. Uh, but th what happened in the succeeding decades is that they moved away from that. So by the 1820s, 1830s, not only have they given up on the idea that there should be one single religious establishment, but increasingly what they were saying was that um, there should be no government, direct government support for religion. So it's, it, it's a change that takes place over about a generation. Um, so if you go back right to, say, 1776 or 1787, you will find uh, a much higher proportion of framers, founders probably, willing, uh, in, in the states as well as in the federal government, willing to countenance some degree of religious establishment, um, some uh, explicit direct religious establishment. By the 1820s, most of that has gone away. People, by that point, uh, do want religion in their public life, uh, but it's a religion that's more diffuse, that operates through the courts uh, or informally through culture and not so much through people's uh uh, tax payments. Uh, so, so there, there, there's a change that takes place, and if you don't pay attention to that change, if you assume that everybody's the same in 1776 as they are in 1820, or the same in 1763 uh, uh, as they are in 1790, then you'll miss a lot. It was an era that was changing rapidly, in which there was a good deal of disagreement. And that disagreement sort of continues up to the present, as we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on in the interview. I'm speaking today with Chris Benecke. He's an associate professor of history at Bentley University and author of the book Beyond Toleration, The Religious Origins of American Pluralism. We're also speaking with Christopher Grenda. He's a professor of history at Bronx Community College of the City University of New York. Among other books, he co-edited The First Prejudice, Religious Tolerance and Intolerance in Early America. Chris and Christopher are the editors of the new book, The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. Um, let's let's uh, zoom out a little bit. You mentioned uh, earlier that this uh, volume also takes uh, a, a, a transnational look at the topic. And this, this is the chapter, the very first chapter that really – uh, that I really enjoyed in particular because it introduced me to um, the idea that religious toleration uh, was, uh, you know, um, something that was important to uh, the English government before uh, it wasn't it wasn't a brand new thing born in the American context. It's it was it was transnational. So Rhode Island wasn't this lone experiment, or Pennsylvania and th these types of places weren't just singular. Um, experiments, but rather there were other attempts uh, at accommodating religious diversity in pl places like Barbados and Dunkirk. So let's talk a little bit about that chapter, about the wider context of 
of religious toleration beyond uh, the shores of, of America. Maybe, Christopher, maybe you want to start on that, and then, Chris, you can sound sure. off. Sure. As I, as I uh, briefly mentioned in passing a few moments ago, Evan Hayfield really does set up the, the volume nicely with that opening essay, which puts the uh, Rhode Island Charter in a global context. And so uh, his work, uh, his, his work is, is, is tremendous in, in, in looking at places in the British Empire on different continents, whether it be European continents, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and a lot of what he talks about there is the pragmatism of Charles II, the, uh, the, the English monarch uh, in, in the late 1600s, how he understands that there are religious differences in different parts of his empire and that uh, he'll use his royal prerogative. He'll use his royal prerogative to grant certain forms of toleration to different groups in different areas, including Catholics in certain parts of the empire. And so that, that first chapter really does highlight how Rhode Island, although it has some distinct characteristics, um, is not completely unique at this point in terms of having a coexistence of different religious groups. Those distinct characteristics, nevertheless, do, do somewhat remain, and I think those are distinct characteristics coming out of uh, Roger Williams and his specific religious beliefs, and we've touched upon this about the proselytizing and conversion and such, and, and kind of this robust, uh, this robust uh, religious debate, religious disagreement. But uh, Heffley does a great job in putting the Rhode Island Charter in this in this global context and, and giving the readers a real kind of panoramic view of some of the uh, formulas of toleration that are there in the late 17th century. Um, over time, the volume will increasingly focus on the American context, but it does it does begin with this kind of broad uh, broad perspective. And one of the things that's extraordinary, too, about the 17th century, I think, and that may come as a surprise to modern readers, is, is how diffuse the British Empire was and other European empires as well, is, and how informal they were, and, 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 and how many different types of arrangements prevailed. There was not just one formula uh, for all, all the, the, the colonies of the empire. There were a number of them, as, as um, you know, Chris has alluded to, and these resulted in, in very different... In, in, oftentimes contradictory arrangements where some groups got tolerated in one place, but not another. Um, and uh, so this means that the story we tell is, is rather complex and more complex, I think, than a lot of people um, have known up until this point. Um, what it also tells us is that uh, what Evan's, Evan Hayfley's story uh, about the 17th century also tells us is that there were differences within uh, the British government itself and the king oftentimes disagreed with parliament and within the spaces of those disagreements people could find room for toleration. Sometimes it, this actually worsened things for dissenters um, when there was no strong authority, when the king um, was not able to exert his his prerogative, um, when either popular prejudice or parliamentary uh, acts limited um, royal authority. Uh, but over time, what we do see is a consensus developing towards toleration, partly because people thought colonies could not be populated or enriched without it. Um, but a lot of diffusion, a lot of complexity. It's a story that takes shape, that unfolds uh, in, in a variety of different ways and uh, will end. There's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no one 
place. There's no one location that it's all destined to arrive at. Uh, the fact that we get religious freedom in the United States at the latter part of the 18th century um, has a lot to do with choices people made along the way and the complex arrangements that, uh, that they built their church-state establishment on. I was surprised to, to learn how much it was tied up in local economies. So there were areas where um, you would need labor, you would need people to come in and, and, and provide warm bodies. And so by opening up the gates to particular religious groups, you could bring people in to help. So th there was a lot of pragmatism. Uh, it, and it also explained why there was a lot of uh, different rules for different groups in different places. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that, that that notion of, of of pragmatism, not using it in the official capital P sense, but just in a kind of a colloquial lower P, uh -huh. uh, lowercase sense, um, that's certainly something that that seems to be on the upswing in the late 17th century, following the religious wars, the European religious wars, the Thirty Years' War, but then also the Civil War in England. Um, that many thinkers b begin to try to ponder, well, you know, we we can't have societal breakdown like that. We can't have continued societal breakdown. So. How are we going to uh, have some kind of arrangement of, of coexistence between different religious groups? And so in, in terms of just political stability, but then also what you mentioned, kind of economic vitality. Well, if we're going to want uh, our, our economy to thrive, um, and you mentioned like the city of Dunkirk, for example, this idea that well, if we're going to want Dunkirk to kind of thrive as a commercial center like Amsterdam, then we have to let in different religious groups because a lot of those religious groups are going to bring economic vitality, ec economic energy to our city. So both in trying to achieve some form of political stability following all those religious wars, but also having kind of a pragmatic approach to economic, uh, economic activity, there is this kind of upswing in, in, in lowercase pragmatic thought in the late 17th century. Yeah, it's like a making do, an accommodation. Like, what can we do to just make this thing work? Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. And along with that, maybe even before, there, ha there still has to be some recognition that it, 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 people can disagree and still get along because it all gets it all gets thrown out of the window. All those hopes for prosperity by bringing different groups into your society, all that will go out the window if there's conflict. Yep. But there's a recognition, a dawning recognition that there might not be that. In fact, people might be able to get along despite their religious differences. And these things um, become become you know so, sort of tied together over time. There's a mutually reinforcing dynamic that occurs where there's a recognition that you won't have conflict necessarily. You might get a little more prosperity. Prosperity, and before you know it, they're uh, including uh, wider and wider ranges of groups in their societies. And I think an important part of that, just to add one more dimension to it, an important part of that, which which we see in Williams, and will increasingly see in the generations after Williams, even amongst many people who didn't read Williams, is reading Christian biblical text as warranting some kind of accommodation as warranting or de commanding some type of freedom of conscience. And so the more different religious communities, what, you know, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, the, the, the more different religious communities begin to read biblical texts in a ways that, at least on a superficial way, resemble Williams in reading biblical texts. That, look, biblical text requires that we find some kind of accommodation. The more that happens, the more it, it gets embedded in attitudes as generations as, as, as generations come and go. I think that's an important dynamic, that, that interpretation of, of biblical text and what our own religion requires. Yeah, that's what's interesting to see Roger Williams, um, which again is kind of symptomatic of his overall approach, which was thoroughly undergirded by his religious beliefs, is when he would, one of the scriptures he went to uh, was 
he said, you know, Christ insisted on letting the wheat and the tares grow together until the end when 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 God would sift uh, those things out. So his argument there was, you know, we we aren't the ones to be deciding who's wheat and who's tares. Uh, and, and it's funny that he would use a religious uh, scripture like that as a way to encourage uh, more openness and diversity and uh, so it, it's kind of a paradox like I'm using this you kind of would have to agree with that scripture in order to <laughs> agree with that the reading of it kind of a thing what I think is yeah, back to something that you uh, yeah something gets back to something Chris B. touched upon earlier, and that's the strangeness of, of the charter, but broadening that a little bit, the strangeness of, of Williams and Williams' thought to many readers today. That tares and wheat metaphor, and, and Williams takes that from the, from the Gospel of Matthew, um, much of Williams' uh, his, his two major books, uh, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, where I, uh, he gets into thick, thick biblical interpretation regarding that passage where his adversary, John Cotton, one of the Puritans from Massachusetts, is interpreting the passage, and Williams is interpreting the passage in different ways, but they're interpreting the passage by referencing other biblical passages, both in, in, in the Christian New Testament and the Christian Old Testament. It is thick, thick theological exegesis. And for readers in the early 21st century, um, to, to read like the bloody tenet of persecution, uh, it really is to enter into a strange world, um, and, and yet out of this strange world of, of, of thick biblical hermeneutics comes this idea that seems uh, 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 relevant to us, uh, freedom of conscience. Chris? Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, if, if you want, if you dive into the blind of persecution and, and, and look for a quotable phrase on freedom of conscience— you you need a lot of luck. I mean, don't don't plan on just doing it and and, and finding a passage randomly in there. You're gonna have to search hard um, because it is encased in really um, thick uh, biblical hermeneutics, as Chris points out. Um, you know, and I and I think this this goes back to uh, to the the, the the point that there there is this kind of there is this uh, reciprocity between um, religious belief. Uh, uh, and the the epistemologies surrounding it, and secular beliefs and epistemologies uh, that end up producing some the the you know a consensus about toleration. Um, people like Williams are mingling the idea that you can have a secular state along with uh, lots of religious people, which itself is not necessarily a Christian idea, at least not uh, directly embedded in the Bible, along with uh, Deeply uh, rooted biblical ideas about um, you know the end times and uh, you know about uh, the relationship between our souls and God and these things come together uh, in, in in ways that allow people to tolerate those of, of different faiths and, and different beliefs. You mentioned the secular element of things, and some people get the impression that uh, that the rise of secularism is just bent on. Doing away with religion is there an is there a different story that can be told there where the rise of the secular uh, was was yet another way to help make place for religious diversity? Well, I, just as you're asking the question, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, the the work of of, of Charles Taylor, mm -hmm. uh, where I, I I hate to try to summarize you know his his thousands <laughs> of pages of scholarship, yeah. and I, I'm far from any kind of expert. On them, but um, going back to let's simplify this a little bit. Going back to the to the ship, the ship metaphor we talked about earlier. 
Well, that is essentially a conception of the secular. Uh, that is a conception of civic obligations, uh, um, uh, not completely separate from religious beliefs. Religious beliefs happen there in that secular in that secular arena, but the, the, the secular arena doesn't depend upon your religious beliefs. I mean, you're, you can be part of the, the same secular civic community despite those um, those uh, different beliefs. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I guess this is the long-winded way of, of, of answering your question in the affirmative. It, it somewhat depends upon how you define secular, but yeah. the, the notion of a, of a secular space that's not dominated by one religious group or one religious interpretation um, that doesn't require a particular belief to enter that secular space and be part of it to become a citizen of that space, that yeah, that, that does open up, that is a prerequisite for some conception of toleration or religious liberty. Now, of course, different people though define that secular space in, in, in very different ways. So, right. uh, underneath that that kind of superficial consensus are, are very deep disagreements. But it does seem to be a prerequisite um, for some type of toleration or liberty. Uh, let's circle back for a second, back to the idea that uh, that these experiments in religious toleration and how they played out uh, politically were kind of locally crafted the, the the fact that you can look at different locations and see different rules being applied christopher jones uh was a contributor uh to this volume he contributed an essay on methodism and slavery so as methodism it was a, a really strong missionary movement and as it spread by missionaries on both sides of the atlantic slaveholders and government officials became increasingly wary of of tolerating their activities this is because they wondered if uh, you know preaching to slaves could incite slave rebellions and things like that. So what was at stake here, and how did the dynamic of religious tolerance play out when we bring race and slavery into the discussion? I think there were always limits to the extension of, of, of religious tolerance. Um, in fact, I, I don't just think that. We, we know that there have always been limits to the extension of religious tolerance, and very often those limits are boundaries where people's interest and uh, desire to extend liberty of conscience runs up against their concerns, their anxieties about public order. And you can see again and again in the history of religious toleration that uh, that people are willing to allow for toleration, liberty of conscience in various times and places to various degrees to the degree that it does not rub up against public order. And you know, George Washington, whenever he writes a letter to a congregation, as he often did in 1789, 1790, they'd write him a letter congratulating him on becoming the presidency. He'd write back, and he'd always include some qualification in endorsing their own religious liberty. He'd say, you know, providing, uh, you have liberty conscience, providing that you support the state in some form or another. Um, so... And that you, you see, too, in the 20th century when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses. That is that there, people are allowed to worship as they please as long as they're not disturb, disturbing the public peace. Now, when it came to slavery and slave societies, this was the basis of the social order. So anybody who threatened the institution of slavery thereby threatened the social order um, and so couldn't be tolerated. And that was true even of those who uh, were interested in proselytizing, who tried to bring, as they saw it, Christianity to a benighted people, uh, to an oppressed people, they were regarded not so much as proselytizers as as instigators of rebellion, as potential disruptors of the social order. Um, and so in slave societies, there was a different idea about 
uh, of the social order. And therefore, some people were excluded from the types of religious toleration, liberty, the, the church safety arrangements that were beginning to prevail elsewhere. It was a deeply threatening, just to proselytize among slaves was deeply threatening because public order depended on slavery. Yeah, to that I would I would add um, just building on that notion of deeply threatening to the social order. Um, you know, slavery, uh, especially as it's developing in in areas in the Caribbean that Christopher Jones analyzes. Um, you know, the kind of the modern plantation slave system um, re requires such a control of a population that. To, to, to give that population control over anything, in this case religion, would seem to kind of be pulling one of the bricks out of the foundation of the oppressive system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, we could look at other areas of life to, to, to give, uh, whether it be free or enslaved people of color, control over different areas of life would, would just be a fundamentally threatening uh, prospect when you're looking at these kind of large slave plantation systems. And I also think there's another element there, um, kind of element we can call historical consciousness. Um, if you think about, for example, how as Americans, even if we're not experts on the subject, we can all kind of reference the notion of Jim Crow segregation in the South. Um, so we might not even, you know, so teaching some students might not know much about it, but they kind of have some sense of what it is. So in a similar way, when looking at the 18th century historical consciousness, I, I think there's a, there's a general historical consciousness, especially among those in political power, of the religious wars of the 17th century. And even if you want to go back to the Reformation, some of the radical, the radical violence in the, in the radical parts of the Reformation, so this notion that religion can be very destabilizing, especially if it's being practiced by unlicensed preachers, spreading, you know, spreading certain kinds of of Christian messages of free grace and Christian freedom. So I think that historical consciousness of, of, of the potential threat of proselytizing in evangelical religion is, is part of the reaction um, of that, that, that Christopher Jones details in the authorities and the reactions to Methodists in, in areas of the Caribbean. It was also interesting to see the ways that Methodism and Methodists had to adapt, too, because you had Methodist figures in America that would could be a lot more forthright in in um, condemning slavery and in sounding for their time quite progressive in the sense of uh, seeking change in society. And then you had Methodists in uh, in in the Caribbean and other places that had to put out fires as a result of those you know types of sermons and say, oh no 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 we're we're not here to uh, to talk about the abolition of slavery or anything like that. We're we're just here. In fact, we can help. We can help uh, keep, you know, keep peace here and, and spread our faith this way. So you even saw within Methodism um, adapting to different circumstances. Another essay that uh, that I wanted to talk about was Christine Hutchison Jones's contribution, and, and hers focuses on how how public perceptions of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints shifted in, in the United States from about the 1940s to the 1960s. And it seems like her paper examines, uh, along with what I just said about Methodism, uh, ways that religious groups can increase their access to religious tolerance by making efforts to align themselves better with the prevailing culture. So um, what stood out to, to you in this essay about Mormonism? Well, I, I think... One of the themes that the, her essay highlights, and, and other essays also highlight this, and, and, and Blair, you just you just kind of touched upon it, is like this double-edged sword that if we track uh, Mormons and their and their standing in the larger American community, 
from the late uh, 19th century through, let's say, the Eisenhower administration in the middle, middle 20th century, um, their standing, their, their sense of respect certainly is on the upswing in, in, in those decades. They're increasingly accepted as part of American society all the way to the point where, as Christine Hutchinson Jones indicates in her essay, the, the, uh, the, the, the Tabernacle Choir is kind of seen by mid-20th mid century as kind of this, you know, distinctly American phenomenon. And so that highlights the, the, the extent to which Mormons have been, you know, accepted, accepted as, as, as tolerated. But, but that required on their part a certain assimilation to American norms. And so the vast majority of Mormonism, Mormons, uh, um, uh, reject the older uh, practice of polygamy in, in accommodating themselves to American norms. So I think that that notion of tolerance and assimilation, that almost like to get the tolerance, a group like the Mormons had to assimilate. Uh, to, to, to a significant degree. And we see this, again, there are other, other essays in the book that, that, that address this, the, 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 the essay on the Jehovah Witnesses mm -hmm. talks about how their increasing tolerance uh, uh, after the 1940s is somewhat predicated upon them giving up their more uh, aggressive forms of prosody, or at least toning down, I shouldn't say give up, but toning down their more aggressive forms of proselytizing. So that kind of double-edged sword that, yes, tolerance, greater acceptance, but that required a certain assimilation on the part of the minority religious group at the same time. That's right, and I think that Chris is absolutely right in pointing out that polygamy was uh, a key factor here, that giving up the doctrine of, uh, of celestial marriage was one that, although some historians, I think, have, have famously and, and really intriguingly argued that that was inconsequential, um, I, I, I think that there's, there's a pretty strong correlation, and, and, and the relationship may in fact be causal, between giving up that thing which was so different um, and so threatening to, 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 to outsiders, to other Americans, um, and the acceptance of Mormons by, you know, within, within a couple decades after that, or at least the decreasing levels of tolerance followed by increasing levels of acceptance. It, 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 it's hard to break down that alteration without, without seeing uh, the, the relinquishing of, of social marriages as, as part of the equation, as a big part of the equation. Yeah, I and mean, I think so too. And you, you see, um, of course, there's the 1890 manifesto that abolished, uh, or that, that that stated that Mormons uh, Mormons would cease practicing polygamy. And then it took another several decades for the practice itself to wind down. And then you have uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, the rise of of Latter Day Saint patriotism. Yeah. And and uh, and I think white culture had a big. Uh, Mormons were increasingly seen as sort of prototypical white uh, yeah. uh, middle class Americans. And so you see this respectability emerge over the course of uh, of a few decades. It's 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 really quite a <laughs> it's quite a swing. Yeah. You do see with other groups. You know, uh, Jews are also experiencing um, uh, a much higher level of inclusion. In American society by late 1940s. Now that was partly as a direct result of World War II. Then they had in the latter part of the 19th century. So there are some more general trends that are occurring here as well. Um, and, and Roman Catholics uh, also. Yeah. You, you know, if you look at say the treatment um, of Roman Catholic, uh, you know, candidates during like Alfred Smith during the 1928 uh, election, uh, as compared to John F. Kennedy in 1960. There's a real swing, um, whereas prejudice was widely accepted against uh, Roman Catholics and Jews and Mormons in the 20s. By the 1960s, you are defining yourself as an outsider if you are prejudiced. 
It's no longer part of me and no longer an acceptable part of public mainstream culture. Not that it doesn't still abide, not that people don't have those, those bigotries, uh, not that private conversations don't contain prejudicial remarks. It's just that it's not acceptable anymore to articulate them publicly. Maybe you can speak on, on one thing. We talked about polygamy and the change there being f- crucial to the change in public perception of Mormons. Was there something similar in Catholicism? Earlier, I know people were very worried about the idea that Catholics were beholden to the Pope. And so the idea was they couldn't be true American citizens because their true ultimate allegiance was was there uh, in Rome. And so what, what changed in public perception of Catholics that, that brought them more into the mainstream? Uh, well, I think there, too, the process was very similar in that almost immediately uh, after the Constitution, even before the Constitution was ratified, Roman Catholic leaders, especially John Bishop, uh, John Carroll I, uh, Archbishop, Roman Catholic Bishop, and then Archbishop of the United States, um, it, almost as soon as that occurred, he and others were defining the Roman Catholic Church in America as very different from its European counterparts, as, as committed to Republican ideals. Um, as uh, aloof from the civil injunctions of the Pope as could possibly be, and and, uh, said, listen, we have fought with you as fellow citizens. We have shed blood um, in this cause. Uh, We want to be part of this republic, and we are not going to be introducing foreign elements um, into uh, our political decisions, our political participation. We want to be... Uh, defined as a religious people, not as a religious people with commitments, uh, political commitments someplace else. And on those terms, uh, Protestants, late 18th, early part of the 19th century, went along with their growing inclusion in American society. It was it wasn't without road bumps, especially um, in the 1830s and 40s, as anti-Catholic sentiment uh, uh, reemerged uh, with the onset of, of Irish Catholic uh, immigration. Um, but nonetheless. Uh, Roman Catholics will remain uh, in politics uh, and central to American society from that point forward. It was a redefinition of the faith as something that was not political and thereby not threatening the Republican government that did it. Christopher? No, I was just going to add uh, something from a much later time period. Um, Immediately, immediately after World War II, or, or Crispy referred to John F. Kennedy in, in 1960, but of course in the, in the 1960 uh, campaign, he, he has to explicitly say that his political views are independent of, of the papacy or independent. So he still, he still has to make that argument in 1960, which, which suggests that, the, you know, that there, there are still questions or concerns there. But, but nevertheless, if you look at like World War II, so Crispy just took, like, took the revolutionary period. And I'll just take like the post-World War II period where you have a lot of Catholics here in the United States now that, that have come from Eastern Europe now under Soviet control. And so the emerging, the emerging containment consensus. Um, well, Catholics, Catholics play a significant role in this. Um, and, and they, they are, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they're sympathetic figures in, in that they are becoming anti-communist because their homeland, i.e. Poland, is now under, is now under Soviet control. So there's that anti-communist containment consensus is forming here in America. Catholics are certainly part of that. And then when we get into the 1950s, prominent Catholics, uh, uh, making robust intellectual arguments about religious freedom and religious liberty. Um, that certainly contributes to kind of a a, 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 a distinct uh, a Catholic voice in America. 
That's Christopher Grenda. He's a professor of history at Bronx Community College of the City University of New York. And we're joined also by Chris Benicky, associate professor of history at Bentley University. And together they edited The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. We'll take a quick break and be right back for the conclusion of the interview. One of the hardest parts of preparing a great lesson for Sunday school or seminary class or family home evening is coming up with good questions to ask about the scriptures. We've all heard teachers ask questions that seem to fall flat. Most of us have been teachers who've asked stale questions. And the class sits there in silence because everyone knows the answer but nobody wants to say it. The real key to an engaging lesson is having good questions. That's what makes the Maxwell Institute's Scriptures Made Harder book series so valuable. These aren't books that you sit down and read straight through. They're tools. They're they're workbooks that you can use right alongside your scriptures. Instead of telling readers exactly what to think, they're filled with questions that prompt deeper reflection. So we have the New Testament made harder, and we also have the Old Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon made harder as well. Each book is available in print and digital formats. For more information, go to maxwellinstitute.byu.edu slash madeharder. We're back with Chris Benicky and Christopher Grenda. Both of them edited the book, The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. And there's a whole lot of things in this book that we don't have time to talk about today. But I wanted to conclude the interview by talking a little bit more about present day uh, applications. And religious toleration is a value that's it's held in tandem with other values that kind of seem to compete with it. So maybe um, you can speak for a moment about some of the tensions that still exist with the principle of religious toleration in comparison with other uh, values, primarily in the United States. And uh, Christopher, why don't you start? In in many interesting ways, we, we see this, this concept now of tolerance and religious liberty in conflict. Um, one interesting case that, that's been in the news recently and it kind of reminds me, we were talking about Isaac Bacchus earlier, it reminds me a bit of Isaac Bacchus. This case regarding a lawsuit uh, um, involving the Little Sisters of the Poor, that the Little Sisters of the Poor um, wish not to uh, participate in the contraceptive mandate, contraception mandate that's part of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the administration basically offering Little Sisters of the Poor a waiver. If they simply sign the waiver, that their insurance premiums won't be won't go to the contraception mandate. But the Little Sisters of the Poor refuse to sign the waiver uh, on the basis that our religious liberty, our religious conscience doesn't require us or, or doesn't allow us to sign a waiver offered by the state. Well, in a way, this was the situation, uh, at least a, a faint resemblance to Isaac Bacchus. Uh, Massachusetts authorities said to Isaac Bacchus, uh, look, we're going to have a system of religious taxation here in Massachusetts, but you Baptists can be exempted from it. You just need to sign a certificate saying you're a part of the Baptist. You don't need to participate in the religious taxation system. And so we won't collect taxes from you, religious taxes from you. And Bacchus uh, took the position of, of no, that, that my religious conscience uh, forbids me to have to sign a document provided by the state in order to practice my religion. And so just fast forwarding back to today, um, these arguments about religious liberty, the, the free exercise of religion, which is the position the little sisters of the poor are taking, uh, versus this issue of, of, of tolerance that they're increasingly coming into conflict in our in our public square today. And um, 
I'm not sure I see a way out of that conundrum or a way out of that tension. Um, but it's, it's just something we're seeing on many different fronts. Uh, I'll just use the, that one example. Um, and I think it's something we're going to continue to see in, in, in the years going forward. How about you, Chris? Well, I, I think um, uh, the Chris is right, and there are some really interesting analogies to be drawn to the past. Uh, the, you know, as Chris has noted on other occasions, in many ways the circumstances for religious liberty have been altered dramatically. Uh, the it, free exercise of religion now in the United States has been defined expansively by the courts. The courts have been on a, a more or less accommodationist course since the 1970s with some occasional blips here and there, and, and, and more recently, um, some more severe restraints on, on accommodation or more restri- severe restrictions on accommodation. Um, but some of these are the result of changes in the state itself, not no, so much in religion, um, although th- those matter as well, but also in the fact that the state does more than it, than it ever has in the, in the past. It does a lot of good things. Uh, it also does you know, things that people might be troubled by. And, and that means that it, of course, comes into conflict uh, w- with religion. Um, now, that being said, there is probably more space for religious liberty in the United States uh, than there's ever been in the history of the world. Um, but as in the past, there are limits, and those limits are generally defined by our civic obligations, as they were for Roger Williams, as they were for Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, as they were in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and, and, and so we are still in the process of trying to reconcile what exactly it takes um, to run that, you know, the uh, Roger Williams ship of state, uh, that reconcile the, our religious imperatives with our civic obligations. Um, do we, in fact, need to believe the same thing um, in, in the case of, 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 um, or of, of gay marriage in order to function as a polity? Or can we disagree over those things and continue to sail? Um, and, and so one of the things that makes this story of Roger Williams and religious Tolerance so interesting is that some of our deepest values are engaged here and, and probably will continue to be into the future. So the last thing, oh, sorry, go ahead, Christopher. I was going to add to that. I think Chris B. made an excellent point that, um, you know, one of the fundamental differences between today and the founding era, and we were talking about before kind of cherry picking things from the founding, and I try to suggest that that's not a particularly fruitful exercise. So one of the fundamental differences is simply the, the, the amount of space the state, the amount of civic space the state occupies today vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis in the founding. And, and Chris B. Is, 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 is certainly correct. The state does many important and good things. Um, and if I give a, a quick plug to Paul Matsko's essay in the volume, um, part of what he does is deal with this idea of an administrative state in the 20th century and how that provides an apparatus um, that provides an apparatus for some to step on the toes of others. And, and so as it, it gets back to this kind of concept of a double-edged sword, as the state is in, involved in many civic endeavors and doing good things, it, it is simultaneously providing an apparatus for these kinds of conflicts. So when you think of something like the Affordable Care Act, and, and, and you know, there's certainly many good things that, that, that can do, um, but it also sets up an administrative system that's going to set on step on toes. And so like we're seeing that now in the lawsuit I referred to. 
and, and, and I, you know, there's really no way out of this in the sense that there's no one answer. There are going to be in individual cases, there are going to be winners and losers. And so um, the little sisters of the poor are either going to win or lose their case. And it, and it doesn't it doesn't provide some kind of simplistic answer as if the state and its apparatus is wrong in all these cases. It, it does some good things, but it also sets up these tensions in other situations. And, and, and the volume does address that in one or two of the essays, as I said, Paul Matzko's essays. And I think it's just a this notion of the administrative state, its potential, it, it, it's it's its potential in both directions is something that um, uh, is, is kind of at the forefront, I think, of some of these questions about tolerance and religious liberty today. The last question I wanted to touch on was um, just to ask what brought both of you to this particular topic. Both of you have, have done multiple projects that talk about religious tolerance, uh, not only this collection but other books. So uh, do you bring any religious sensibilities from the past or personal history that, uh, that led you to focus on this in your academic life? Um, Chris, why don't you start and Christopher? I'm a I'm a Roman Catholic, but uh, but I grew up in a in a, in a mixed household. My dad was a a, a Protestant, uh, Dutch Reformed, and um, you know, obviously both Christian. But nonetheless, there were differences along the way. Um, those differences were less deeply felt by my parents than than they were by my grandparents, uh, who harbored old, older resentments. And so I I think that that's always kind of in, inform my thinking a little bit about this this sort of thing and and uh, maybe my interest in the subject that together with an abiding interest in and in religion and 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 the question of how we reconcile uh, our deepest differences you know how we how we how we accommodate one another despite despite those differences those are the i, I think more than anything been the motivating factors for me christopher Just a, a historical, the developing historical love with the early modern period that 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 uh, I, I guess began some point in the undergraduate years in college, and 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 the more um, I enjoyed learning about the period, you know, religious differences, religious conflicts are, are central to the period. There, there, even if one is not a his, historian of of religion per se, uh, you know, if you're dealing with the early modern period. You know, religion and religious conflicts, and, and and living or not living with differences, are, they're unavoidable themes. And so, since the undergraduate years, just finding uh, finding the way that played out over the course of generations and centuries has just been fascinating. Um, ended up spending a couple years in a seminary uh, just to study theology, just out of that 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 interest. So it's just been something that, I guess, since circa around 20 years of age, I've just uh, found uh, found. Uh, exciting and complex. That's Christopher Grenda. He and Chris Beneke are the editors of the book The Lively Experiment, Religious Toleration in America from Roger Williams to the Present. I want to thank both of you for um, for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it.